Well, it's good to be with you for this uh, final presentation. Remember that my uh, claim, uh, my thesis uh, during these three lectures has been that uh, leadership is character. Contrary to what uh, the, uh, the popular uh, culture has argued, contrary to what the corporate culture argues, leadership is essentially character, and that is a virtuous character. We looked at uh, Gregory of Nazianzus and uh, his understanding of uh, leadership, Christian leadership, uh, yesterday afternoon. This morning, we focused in upon one of the virtues that is to characterize Christian leaders, and that was the virtue of renunciation and generosity. And today, we tackle uh, our second uh, virtue as we conclude uh, this lecture. In this third lecture, I want to take you back again to early Greece, back again to one of Homer's poems, back again to an ancient leadership virtue critical to Christian elders and more broadly, by extension, Christian leaders. Yesterday, we focused on the leader's soul in relationship to his or her internal desires regarding money, riches, and passions of possession. The leader's soul is to be marked by heavenly desire, self-denial, heavenly values, and generosity. Now we turn our attention to the leader's soul insofar as it is oriented outwardly towards others. As in earlier lectures, our sources are primarily from antiquity, Greco-Roman, biblical, and early Christian. We begin today in the Odyssey. Our interest is with the many suitors of Odysseus's wife, Penelope. Recall that Odysseus's tenure absence has permitted these unscrupulous young men to besiege his wife and son and to ravage his household. They are presented to us, <clears throat> pardon me, in the poem as leaders who disregard the common cultural standards of hospitality. Having hijacked the home, of the poem's hero king, they spend their time partying at the expense and attempting to court his wife. To orient us clearly to the problem, let's listen to one character within the ancient epic. But now tell me this, who are these banqueters? And what is the occasion? A drinking party or a wedding feast? They look so arrogant and self-indulgent, making themselves at home a wise observer would surely disapprove of how they act. In these words of censure, the goddess of wisdom, Athena, speaks her mind about the rankest suitors who have commandeered the home of Homer's Odysseus in Ithaca. The wise spectator would recognize that the prideful and gluttonous men who attempt to take the place of Odysseus, the king of Ithaca, are merely wicked impostors. Their behavior manifests that they are not authentic rulers. They do not anticipate Odysseus's return, so they have no fear of retribution for their reign of unrighteousness and cruelty. They are rapists and drunkards. Meanwhile, Odysseus, the man of twists and turns, is shipwrecked and marooned on an island. Far away from home and worn from battle, he is being held captive by the nymph Calypso while his household suffers. The Odyssey portrays him as a complicated man with both virtue and vice. Yet in contrast to the young scoundrels who plunder his palace and pursue his conflicted wife, Penelope, he is characterized as a virtuous leader. Both a colleague and a goddess, Athena, testify that as a king, he is like a gentle and kind father. When he rules, unlike those in Ithaca, he brandishes the royal scepter, not with cruelty and injustice, but in a virtuous manner that pays heed to right and wrong. The despots who occupy his home in Ithaca are not, however, compared to a good father. Instead, they are compared to the Cyclops and those monstrous, inhuman, cannibalistic giants, the Laestragonians, who greet Odysseus's men by eating some of them or scouring others like fish before devouring them. 
Hospitality is a major theme in Homer's tale due to its importance within a culture that depended upon the generous reception of strangers for survival. In the Odyssey, then, hospitality is a literary device that measures virtue. The imposters at Ithaca are without virtue. Like the Cyclops or the Lestragonians, the suitors who have taken over Odysseus's palace in Ithaca are defined as abnormal and monstrous eaters. We are repeatedly told that they are devouring and wasting the household wealth of Odysseus by consuming his fattest animals and drinking his wine in their constant feasts and failing to repay the absent owner or take care of the estate. It is, of course, a violation of hospitality to enter a person's home uninvited and remain there day after day, using up his food stores, wine, and wealth. The poem emphasizes that it is also unjust. The norms of behavior require a person to pay back what he or she owes, and a guest is supposed to give presents to a generous host rather than simply enjoy the benefits of hospitality without giving anything in return. Some readers might believe that such greed and ingratitude, though boorish and unpleasant, does not constitute evil or deserve death. However, Homer crafts his epic in such a way that there remains no incredulity about the wickedness of the kings and princes. Their crime is enormous. Their behavior reveals an excessive thirst for superiority. They yearn to be above or beyond others. They are overbearing and arrogant, wanting to lord it over others and gorge themselves on others. They are self-indulgent in the employment of their superior strength or power, or in sensual indulgence they run riot. The same language is used also of the Lestragonians and the Cyclops, those man-eaters. We are repeatedly told that the suitors are devouring not only the literal property of Odysseus, but also metonomically his house, and hence his livelihood or his very life. The words bios and biotos can mean both way of making a living and life itself. It is as if in eating Odysseus's animals, the suitors are metaphorically eating the man himself and his son. Telemachus, Odysseus's son, tells us as much. Reassigning himself to the will of the gods, he soberly says that the suitors keep eating, consuming my whole house, and soon they may destroy me too. The young men have set themselves up as Odysseus's replacements. Penelope's suitors who fancy themselves leaders are described as the kings, the princes, the rulers, and the lords of Ithaca and three other islands. But they fail in guest friendship, a sacred relationship that in Greece exists not only between two individuals or two groups, but also between ruler and community. They see themselves as the new rulers, the new leaders of Ithaca. But Homer has shown us that they are frauds, grifters, counterfeits. They have broken the laws of hospitality, the laws of guest friendship, in Homer's tongue, the laws of Xenia. Therefore, they are not even good Greeks, nor even decent citizens. In Homer's poem, we see how true kings, authentic leaders, act. Odysseus himself identifies generous exemplary hospitality as a virtue of true kingship. In early Greece, kings were to be the very best from among their peers in a variety of virtues. Odysseus was once such a hospitable king. After he returns home, costumed as a beggar to reclaim his family and palace, Odysseus asks the suitor, Antonus for food and taunts him as one who has all the outward appearance of being both the best of all Achaeans and a king. However, although Antonus, if he actually is kingly, should give more than all the others, he refuses to give the beggar, Odysseus, any food, even the food from another's table, let alone his own. 
Antonus, therefore, is not in reality the best. He only seems or pretends to be a king, for he lacks the essential virtue of the best hospitality. On the other hand, we see true kingly hospitality in Nestor, the king of Pilus. When Telemachus visits him, Nestor practices the most noble hospitality. Odysseus's son reports to his mother that he made me very welcome in his palace and under his roof, as if I were his son returning after many years away. He cared for me like one of his own sons. The greeting given Telemachus by King Menelaus is equally proper. Though, he visits, uh, though his visit interrupts the weddings of the king's own children, he is refreshed with a bath, anointed with oil, given luxurious clothing, seated in a place of honor at the wedding feast, and fed a sumptuous meal. The true kings, authentic leaders, are not self-indulgent. They receive interruptions generously. They offer their palaces and their feasts to the guest and stranger. Even if a Greek was approached by a stranger at a time of great inconvenience, the rules of guest friendship applied. The extreme may strike some as strange. For instance, in Alcestis, one of the tragedies of the playwright Euripides, Heracles arrives unexpectedly at Admaris's home just as Admaris is preparing to bury his wife, Alcestis. Despite Heracles' inconvenient arrival, the over-hospitable Admaris refuses to turn him away and even pretends that he is conducting a funeral, not for his wife, but for his maidservant. Leaders were expected to lead in hospitality within Greco-Roman antiquity, not only because of the example it would set or the blessed effect it would have upon the individual stranger who was befriended, but because of its communal impact. Cicero explains that when a king practices guest friendship with a foreigner, he extends friendship to the stranger's people and potentially welcomes an ally. If he fails to extend hospitality to a dignitary, he is either barbaric and uncivilized or so omnipotent and independent in his own mind that he needs no alliances. When a king plays host to a Roman senator, for instance, it is not only the senator who is honored, but primarily, Cicero notes, the Roman people. When a leader is hospitable to one member of a community, the entire community feels befriended. The opposite is also true. The surest way to turn a community into a group that is antagonistic against a leader, either passively or actively, is to dishonor one of its members, particularly a representative one. The laws of hospitality are a set part of the Greco-Roman culture, and the host breaks them in any of the following three cases. One, if a host insults a guest or shows any hostility or rivalry towards a guest, hosts must honor their guests. Two, if a host fails to protect a guest or the honor of a guest. Or three, if a host fails to attend to a guest, fails to grant a guest due precedence, fails to show concern for a guest's needs and wishes, a host's failure to offer the best to a guest denigrates the guest. Therefore, no matter how far from perfect the hospitality might be, the host always offers the very best possible service. Within Greek culture, there is a religious theological grounding for hospitality. The gods, particularly Zeus, respected the norms of guest friendship and were also believed to protect strangers. Odysseus, in addressing the Cyclops, Polyphemus, pleads with him to respect the cultural practice of hospitality out of reverence for the way in which the deities play the role of patrons of the stranger and infirm. Odysseus beseeches the Cyclops, Now we beg you, here at your knees, to grant a gift, as is the norm for hosts and guests. Please, sir, my lord, respect the gods, 
We are your suppliants, and Zeus is on our side since we since he takes care of visitors, guest friends, and those in need. A myth concerning Tantalus, the son of Zeus, reveals to what degree Zeus honored a host's respectful treatment of a guest. The myth describes Tantalus entertaining the gods. At a banquet he hosts for them, he serves them a gruesome feast with his own sacrificed son as the main dish, testing them to see if they really knows all things. Zeus, in return for this hospitality of horror, dishes out his wrath upon Tantalus. Odysseus in Hades witnesses his enduring punishment, a torment where he is repaid for serving an insulting meal to his guests by never being able to fill his own belly or quench his own thirst. Odysseus tells us, I saw the pain of Tantalus in water up to his chin, so parched, no way to drink. When that old man bent down toward the water, it was gone. Some god had dried it up, and at his feet dark earth appeared. Tall leafy trees hung fruit above his head, sweet figs and pomegranates and brightly shining apples and ripe olives. But when he grasped them with his hands, the wind hurled them away towards the shadowy clouds. The myth of a host attempting to serve a ghastly meal to a costumed Zeus occurs another time in pseudo Apollodorus's Bibliotheca. This time, Lycoen, king of Arcadia, hosts Zeus, who shows up at his palace in the form of a peasant day laborer to see if the rumors about his pride and impiety and that of his 50 sons were true. Like Tantalus, he serves Zeus a disgusting cannibalistic meal. In punishment for such a failure in hospitality towards a peasant, the enraged Zeus upsets the entire table and slaughters Lycaon and 49 of his sons with lightning bolts. In a disjointed and developing political and economic climate where travelers are at a disadvantage in terms of both security and commercially available lodging, guest friendship became a matter of survival. Jean Daniel Lu explains that hospitality is first of all a great human reality. The Greeks and Romans saw in it one of the marks of a civilized people. It can safely be said that to a certain point, the degree of civilization of a race or a people is characterized by their conception of hospitality. Hospitality is a barometer of civilization. In Cicero's mind, the connection between hospitality and civilization is clear. It is inhuman and barbaric to refuse guest friendship to a stranger. We are better able to understand this link when we recall the striking linguistic fact that in many languages, the same root word serves as derivative for the words guest and enemy. These two terms provide the opposing categories in which to place a stranger. One does not belong to a certain clan, race, society, or family uh, uh, who does not belong to one of these uh, is regarded as an enemy or a guest. For the Greeks and any society or community that wished to claim civility, that assertion gained credence when the stranger from an enemy became a guest. Hospitality inverts. It makes the alien a friend. Because of the attention the gods are believed to pay to it, and because, as we have seen, no one knows when the visiting stranger will be a god in peasant clothing, hospitality is hallowed by religion. Its nature is holy. For Cicero, to be a friend is the most honorable thing, and to be a host is the most sacred. Zeus, the god of gods himself, is the patron of hospitality. In the Odyssey, Eumenius makes this clear when he says, one must honor guests and foreigners and strangers, even those much poorer than oneself. Zeus watches over beggars and guests and strangers. 
What I have to give is small, but I will give it gladly. Plato clarifies both the human and divine concern with hospitality. Mercy is required because the stranger is completely vulnerable and without recourse. The philosopher states, the foreigner or the stranger being alone without friends or kinsmen deserves greater sympathy from mankind and the gods. The community, the leader that practices hospitality is both civilized and devout. There is a universal law of hospitality known by both human and beast in antiquity. Homer puts it this way, be kind to guests while they are visiting, then help them on their way. Failure to obey the law brings divine retribution. Pausanias writes that Zeus advises us to respect suppliants or strangers, and that there are many proofs that the wrath of Zeus, the god of suppliants or strangers, is inexorable. Strangers, Zeus declares, are not to be wronged, for they are sacred and holy. We also hear from Ovid, the Roman poet, of the divine blessings that come upon those who practice guest friendship. He tells the story that having come to earth in human form, the gods Jupiter and Mercury went on a search for a place to rest. A thousand times they were turned away by locked doors. Finally, they arrive at the simple dwelling of the godly Baucus and Philemon. They had very little with which to serve the gods, but making light of their poverty, they made them as comfortable as their pitiful furnishings would allow and fed them with what meager food they had in humble dishes. Above all, there was the additional presence of well-meaning faces and no unwillingness or poverty of spirit. Impressed with the generosity and piety of their hosts, the gods reveal themselves. Take Baucus and Philemon outside where they show their hosts that they have flooded the homes of their inhospitable, evil, and impious neighbors and turned their simple cottage into a plush temple. In final reward, the gods grant prayers of their hosts to become priests in the temple for those who honor the gods with guest friendship will be honored. But it is not just the gods who feel obligated to bring retribution or reward to the pious host. The just ruler both practices hospitality and judges the ungrateful, impious host. Herodotus preserves a myth concerning Proteus of Memphis. Proteus hears of Alexandrus, a stranger, who received hospitality from Menelaus, king of Sparta, but repaid him by seducing his wife, Helen, running off with her and stealing Menelaus's wealth. To Alexandrus' face, Proteus passed sentence for his hateful crime. Proteus informs him that he will not allow Helen and the riches to depart from Memphis and that the scoundrel had better be gone within three days or he will pursue him as an enemy. Without doubt, hospitality was a virtue expected of Greek and Roman kings and princes. The same is true within Jewish and Christian teaching. Hospitality is a virtue to be written on the Christian leader's soul. The Apostle Paul makes this clear and explicit twice. First in his list of qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3.2 and again in Titus 1.8. Please note that this is not a virtue for which his spouse or other members of his family or his staff is responsible. Please note that he himself is to be hospitable. In Titus, it is the first positive virtue Paul puts down after listing several vices that are not to be characteristic of a leader. In both 1 Timothy and Titus, Paul places it before the qualification associated with teaching or preaching. In the first letter, it precedes the requirement of being able to teach. In the latter epistle, hospitable comes before Paul's insistence that the elder must hold fast to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. 
In underscoring Paul's placement of the virtue of hospitality prior to the responsibility of teaching is not to suggest any order in Paul's list. To the contrary, Paul's lists a collection of qualifications, all of which are equal concern. There is no idea of most or least important, and that is my point. The elder is to be just as concerned about hospitality as he is to be about his teaching. As a matter of fact, a leader's teaching is to be done hospitably, and his hospitality should be a means of instruction. Guest friendship, like most of the qualities listed, was a practice required of all believers in general, which leaders were to exemplify, just as in Homer's Greece. An Old Testament background that must have been informing Paul's thought was Deuteronomy 10, verses 17 through 18. Moses describes the God of Israel as the omnipotent, impartial patron of the poor, the weak, the underprivileged, the defenseless, the landless, the forsaken, the abandoned, and the foreigner. Quote, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who is not partial and takes no bribe, who executes justice for the orphan and the widow, who loves the strangers, providing them food and clothing. The virtue of befriending the stranger in early Israel is rooted in the divine love for the stranger expressed through provision of essential physical needs. God manifests himself as hospitable, yes, But here Moses helps us to see that in the context of Old Testament ethics, hospitality has been elevated and equated to love. We should pause here. Within a biblical theology of hospitality, guest friendship rises to the level of love. For the one who believes in the one true God of Israel, hospitality is not mere politeness, a matter of good manners. It is not an issue of having the appropriate script for the right social occasion. Hospitality simply is a synonym for love. The Lord's commands not to wrong or oppress the stranger mean that one is to love the stranger, as in Leviticus 19.34. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The one who has been a stranger and knows how desperate and forlorn they feel is never to allow another to feel totally unloved. This is precisely what one of the ordinances Moses was to pass on to the people stated. You shall not oppress a stranger, since you yourselves know the feelings of a stranger for you also were strangers in the land of Egypt. It is important at this point for us to remember that in one sense, because God has been hospitable to us in Christ, we are no longer aliens and strangers, for we are members of his household, a people for his own possession. However, in another sense, Peter still refers to Christians as aliens and strangers, for we have not yet received our full inheritance or our full adoption. Our hope of resurrection is not yet fulfilled. As strangers, we still groan along with creation as we, with it, suffer decay and loss prior to the redemption of our bodies. So since we feel the agony of being misplaced, the agony of not yet being glorified, the agony of being estranged, we are to do all that is within our means to ensure that others do not feel disenfranchised or alienated. We are to make them feel welcome, safe, secure, accepted. The words of Moses put a whole new twist on the words of Jesus, love your enemies. This is a command to befriend the one who hates you, to welcome your adversary as your guest, to bless your persecutor, to be as concerned for your antagonist's welfare as you are for your own. It is a call to practice hospitality a call which Jesus himself associates as a virtue characteristic of those who inherit the kingdom, for when they were hospitable to the least of Christ's brothers or sisters, they befriended Christ. 
Do you recall these dominical words? I was a stranger and you invited me in. Those who fail to practice hospitality embrace a vice that is characteristic of those whose destiny is eternal punishment. To them, he says, I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. A word is needed about Jesus' mention of the least and a stranger. In hospitality, the host is unconditionally open to welcoming not the known friend, but the one who is unknown and needy without reciprocity. To the Pharisee who hosted him on the Sabbath, Jesus said, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous." Hospitality is a virtue for all believers in both Testaments. The epistle to the Romans and the letter to the Hebrews make this explicit, and both pair hospitality with love, for one is the corollary of the other. For Paul, love within the body of Christ is to include practicing hospitality, Romans 12, 13. And the Hebrews are told, let love of the brethren continue, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. All Christians are to practice guest friendship as they are to love each other. However, our focus here is on hospitality as a central virtue of the leader's soul. The leader is the chief host. The leader is to exemplify hospitable love before the community for the community. In the same way in which King Odysseus ruled like a gentle father, Paul explains that the Pauline apostolic circle ministered hospitably to the Thessalonians in the manner of gentle, tender, responsible mothers and fathers. One of, King, one of King David's actions recorded in 2 Samuel 9 illustrates the Bible's teaching on how leaders are to model hospitality toward an enemy. After the king's many triumphs, he pauses to consider if he has shown adequate kindness to the house of Saul for Jonathan's sake. Recall that Saul had tried to kill him, yet he inquires, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Of course, lame Mephibosheth is still alive and David passes on to him Saul's riches and allows him to feast at his own table regularly. The hospitable leader seeks opportunity to, be, to befriend an enemy. Retaliation is what we expect from those destined for darkness. We expect retaliation from Penelope's suitors. We expect retaliation from those who do not feel deeply their own estrangement in a decaying world. From Christian leaders, one rightly expects mercy, kindness, generosity, and a seat at the banquet table. I wish to conclude our survey of the virtue of hospitality in antiquity by pointing our attention to the Christian fathers. One biblical text that was instructive for the early fathers was Abraham's hospitality toward his three visitors at Mamre in Genesis 18. It was a model to imitate. Some Jewish interpretations of the event draw out Abraham's bold choice of hospitality as supreme religious duty and God's approval of this choice. Early Christians, however, frequently Christianized the episode, finding both the triune God and Jesus with two angels. Ambrose, for example, does so in his reading, reminds us of the theme within Greek mythology concerning hospitality to the gods and the reference to angels in Hebrews 13.2. He sees at one time the patriarch entertaining one god in three persons and at another Abraham showing hospitality to the Lord Jesus and two angels. The latter reading is quite normative for both early 
and later Christian fathers. But Ambrose is also interested in how the patriarch's example of hospitality instructs the church's leaders. In his treatise on the duties of the clergy, he teaches that the leader should always be on the lookout for the stranger, as was Abraham, ready to be kind, welcoming, courteous, and honorable, without charge. Hospitality, in his mind, is impossible without being free from the love of money, for avarice kills kindness. But even in hospitality, leaders are not to be extravagant or wasteful. They are not to spend money even on good works in order to gain favor or surpass the fame of their predecessors. In his treatise on Abraham, Ambrose notes in keeping with Paul that the virtue is specifically required of bishops. Aphrahat, a fourth century Syriac question, also focuses on Abraham's example of hospitality. Hospitality possible only by faith is a necessary virtue for adequately serving Christ and an interest of the Syrians is the attribute of humility required for exemplary hospitality. Abraham, although a person of high position, follows his regular daily practice of guest friendship and bows down before his angelic guests, not knowing their elevated status and thereby providing the basis for Hebrews 13.2. He sees them only as impoverished strangers and refers to himself as merely dust and ashes. In so doing, he demonstrates how patriarchs relate to the poor and manifests himself as a friend and lover of strangers who receives a blessing for blessing others. Abba Apollo, a fourth century Egyptian ascetic, also meditating upon Genesis 18, takes us back to a focus upon God rather than the angels in his teaching upon hospitality. He exhorts his fellow ascetics to keep in mind that each opportunity to be humbly hospitable to another monk is potentially an experience of God's intimate presence. With regard to receiving the brethren, he said, one should bow before the brethren who come, because it is not before them, but before God that we prostrate ourselves. When you see your brother, he said, you see the Lord, your God. He added, we have learned this from Abraham. We find a treasure of wisdom in relation to our topic in the teachings of the early desert fathers. These believers practiced the ascetic monastic life in the deserts of Palestine, Syria, and most of all, Egypt. Between the third and fifth century, these men and women went into the desert as Christ had gone into the wilderness and lived lives of celibacy, fasting, solitude, silence, prayer, and poverty. Alone or with disciples and mentors nearby, they meditated upon scripture, performed simple work to provide for their needs, and embraced self-denial as imitation of Christ. Many of their teachings were written down and have been collected. One thematic rubric under which several of their sayings may be gathered is that of hospitality. It may surprise us that hermits are examples of hospitality. But in fact, although a few were complete recluses, most attended to their disciples and visitors. The hermit's devotion to the stranger only serves to heighten the importance that the virtue of hospitality held for antiquity's idea of the holy man. Besides the example of Abraham in Genesis 18, other biblical texts are lived out through the hospitality of the ascetics. The words of Jesus and of Paul are central. One of the concerns of the fathers was how to manage a devotion to solitude and fasting in the face of the needs of other monks and strangers. Their teaching may surprise those who have an inaccurate view of the contemplative life. We begin with Cassian, a fourth century ascetic and martyr. He too links the stranger to Christ from Jesus saying about the bridegroom and fasting. Cassian said, we came from Palestine to Egypt and visited one of the hermits. After he had welcomed us, we asked him, when you receive guests, why don't you fast? In Palestine, they do, 
He answered, fasting is always possible, but I cannot keep you here forever. Fasting is useful and necessary, but we can choose to fast or not fast. God's law demands from us perfect love. I receive Christ when I receive you. So I must do all I can to show you love. When I have said goodbye to you, I can take up my rule of fasting again. The sons of the bridegroom cannot fast while the bridegroom is with them. When he is taken from them, then they can fast. The devotion to hospitality in the ascetic life is such that it is the younger, immature monk who must learn the priority of hospitality over one's own life of solitude from the elder desert father. We hear from their teachings that, quote, a brother came to a hermit as he was taking his leave. He said, forgive me, Abba, for preventing you from keeping your rule. The hermit answered, my rule is to welcome you with hospitality and to send you on your way in peace. These sayings bring the virtue of hospitality down into the matter of what we might consider our personal, private, devotional lives and disciplines. Their point is this. They sin when they ignore or turn from others, even for what might be considered pious reasons. Deprivation of guest friendship is abuse. If the one seeking to be holy withholds what they are able to give to the one who interrupts their religiously ordered life, they are unholy. Cassian and the rule of Benedict are both clear about the Christological basis for such hospitality. Above, we heard Cassian say, I receive Christ when I receive you, so I must do all I can to show you love. Likewise, Benedict writes, all guests who arrive should be received as if they were Christ. For he will say, I was a stranger and you took me in. Both monks have Matthew twenty-five thirty-five in mind. To be inhospitable to the stranger is to turn Christ away. Or according to Abba Apollo, God. In the Christian leader's schedule, Christ should always be welcome. An encounter with God himself through service to one of his children should always be yearned for, in the same way that a deer pants for streams of water. Therefore, the stranger should always be befriended. This is essentially required of the Christian leader. The Bishop Jerome mentions this in against Jovinianus. As he treats the Pauline list of virtues, he notes that the bishop should be hospitable so that he imitates Abraham and with strangers, or rather in strangers, entertains Christ. Devotion to hospitality in the ascetic life is not merely based on imitation of Abraham or the Christological dimension, but also on the eschatological. By welcoming the stranger, by denying oneself for the benefit of another, by sacrificing one own, one's own food, possessions, or holy rule, to care for another, one is valuing future eternal blessings over present temporary discomforts. Antony the Great, Athanasius tells us, read Romans 8.18 in this fashion. To the Romans, Paul had written that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Antony, reflecting on these words, counseled his brothers not to consider the difficulties they were enduring in their lives to be hardships that were comparatively long-lasting or severe. Compared to a heavenly glory, comforts that they had renounced on this puny earth were of little consequence. Even if he and his brothers were lords over the whole earth, that magisterial prestige would pair in comparison to the splendor of the kingdom of heaven. Copper, gold, real estate, or house are things that one cannot possess eternally. Therefore, they ought to purposefully be virtuous by choice, be given up in this life rather than merely stolen by death so that the guidelines, so that the godliness might reap heavenly reward. We cannot take these things with us beyond the grave. So he says, 
why not rather get those things which we can take away with us? One such thing that the ascetic should possess is hospitality, along with, for instance, justice and kindness to the poor. Gregory of Nazianzus, in his autobiographical poem concerning his own life, summarizes the ascetic contemplative life that he practiced in his later years, one he believed was ideal for the Episcopal office. He sought to live obediently by the ministering to the poor, exercising hospitality, tending to the sick, persevering in psalmody, prayer, groaning, mortifications of the senses, of impulses of laughter, control of the tongue, lulling the flesh, the flesh by the power of the spirit. Gregory allows us to appropriate here the full, simple, yet multi-dimensional life of the Christian leader, dedicated to renunciation and prayer, scripture, and solitude, yet at the same time given to hospitality and provision for the sick and the poor. In his life and the life of most ascetics, ministerial leadership, devotions, and the virtue of hospitality formed an unbreakable unity. Hospitality with an ancient pagan Greek and Roman thought was a recognized and expected element of social life. It was deemed an aspect of the virtuous life practiced by the gods themselves and required of mortals, kings, and peasants. In welcoming a stranger, one might be welcoming a god. In the sacred and traditional texts of the Judeo-Christian religion, hospitality is exemplified by the one and only true God of Israel and the church and commanded of elders and all believers. One might be welcoming angels, but my interest here is not only in the broader concept of hospitality or guest friendship. Instead, my purpose has been to help us appreciate the ethical ideals that compromise hospitality, that comprise hospitality. To be hospitable is to practice justice, generosity, service, humility, loneliness, meekness, especially to the sick, the poor, the stranger. Hosts honor others protect others, show precedence to others. Hospitality is a lifestyle that refuses to be self-indulgent, hedonistic, or given to self-gratification. It treats an enemy or stranger as a guest, a friend. It sees each stranger, each agent of interruption as Christ and believes that each invitation to a vulnerable, needy, lonely person is an invitation to Christ. Hospitality is merely a means, an opportunity for leaders to express, to manifest the virtues that reside within their souls. Without the requisite virtues, there is no authentic hospitality. Walt Bettinger, CEO of Charles Schwab Corporation, tells a story that helps us to visualize the heart that is hospitable. Hospitality is taking active notice of others. Here is his own account of a learning experience that took place his senior year of college in a business strategy class. I had maintained, he said, a 4.0 average all the way through, and I wanted to graduate with a perfect average. It came down to the final exam, and I had spent many hours studying and memorizing formulas to do calculations for the case studies. The teacher handed out the final exam and it was one piece of paper, which really surprised me because I figured it would be longer than that. Once everybody had their paper, he said, go ahead and turn it over. Both sides were blank. And the professor said, I've taught you everything I can teach you about business in the last 10 weeks. But the most important message, the most important question is this. What is the name of the lady who cleans the building? And that had a powerful impact. It was the only test I ever failed. And I got the B I deserved. Her name was Dottie. And I didn't know Dottie. I'd seen her, but I'd never taken the time to ask her name. I've tried to know every Dottie I've worked with ever since. The soul that is hospitable sees the stranger, notices the stranger, and befriends the stranger. 
In Greco-Roman antiquity, hospitality was a virtue essential to a healthy, thriving, progressive society. Hospitality was a foundational building block to ancient civilization. I believe the same is true for a flourishing Christian organization or community. In pagan myth, it was not only a human law, but also one commanded by the gods. In pagan myth, the gods were welcomed when a human stranger was entertained. What was mythical in antiquity remains mythical in the contemporary secular context. However, for the Christian, hospitality appears as part of a real divinely revealed ethic that has Christological and angelic dimensions. Both treatments, as explained by the fathers, teach the virtue of hospitality and the truth that by attending to strangers, the host attends to Christ and at times entertains angels. Allow me to highlight the unique perspective for Christianity. When Christian leaders are hospitable to other human beings, to the Dotties of this world, they are not befriending a mythical God. In reality, God is visiting them. They are inviting Christ in from the cold, for he will say to the hospitable leader, I was a stranger and you took me in. Hospitality, as the fathers have taught it, is sacramental through service to the visible imminent stranger one serves the unseen Christ and the transcendent God in the act of hospitality heaven and earth meet the things above touch the things below corners of popular evangelicalism doggedly continue to emphasize that intimacy with God is to be found primarily in the hour of personal devotion the privacy of the prayer closet, even in music swollen passion. The ascetic would partly agree. The contemplative life leads to intimacy with the divine. What an ancient perspective on the virtue of hospitality also shows us is what the leader is to model. And that is that intimacy with God and Christ is also to be found in befriending the stranger and in loving one's enemy. Christian leader, it is Christ standing at the door knocking, not the door of your heart, your actual door, the one to your office, your home, your closet, your pantry. Open it. Thank you.